Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 23, Ionic, but not Doric nor Corinthian. In this episode, we continue with physical chemistry, looking at gases again, as well as ions in solution, and see how they eventually meet in the 1880s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. We return to that popular subject of 17th and 18th century chemistry, gases. Recall Robert Boyle and colleagues in the 17th century figuring out that a gas's pressure is inversely proportional to its volume. There were other results dealing with the temperature of the gas. So, in 1834, Benoit-Paul-Émile Clapeyron collated all these various gas relationships together into the form pressure times volume equals a constant K times temperature. So pressure and volume remain inversely proportional, and some fudge factor K times temperature are inversely proportional. Clapeyron called this the loi des gaz parfaits, French for law of perfect gases, but in English we often say ideal gas law. You probably have encountered it in high school or college chemistry classes. Rudolf Clausius complained that there were too many K's appearing in scientific equations and suggested using a capital R instead in honor of Clapeyron, who called this K a ratio. But now we get to serious mathematics on gases. Scotsman James Clark Maxwell and Austrian Ludwig Boltzmann took von Helmont's original idea that a gas was literally a chaos of molecules moving randomly, plus a couple of other assumptions. One, the molecules in a gas neither attract nor repel each other. That is, the molecules are indifferent to other gas molecules. Two, the molecules in a gas have no size. They are point particles. We call gases that fulfill these two assumptions perfect gases, or ideal gases. From these postulates, Maxwell and Boltzmann worked out an equation that gave a most probable speed for gas molecules at a particular temperature. As you raise the temperature of the gas, the most probable speed also increases. Therefore, hotter gases have their molecules moving faster than colder gases. If you plot the speed of the gas molecules on the x-axis and the fraction of all the molecules in that gas on the y-axis, there is a characteristic peak on the plot, which is that most probable speed. Gas molecules can have any speed, but the colder the gas is, the larger fraction will be near the most probable speed. The hotter the gas is, a smaller fraction will be near the most probable speed. You can even guess the temperature by how near the speed is to the most probable speed. Colder gases have a tall, narrow peak, while hotter gases have a flatter, wider peak. Such a plot of molecular velocities is called a Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. 
The Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution is a statistical analysis. We cannot know the speed of any particular molecule, but we can estimate the most likely speed and how many molecules in the system will have a particular speed. This idea of statistical probability is extremely important in science, and will come back to us when we reach the formulation of quantum mechanics in the first third of the 20th century. Using the Maxwell-Boltzmann equation. If we guess a temperature of zero degrees Celsius and a pressure of one atmosphere, the most probable speed for a hydrogen molecule is 1.8 kilometers per second. For an oxygen molecule which weighs more, at the same conditions, the most probable speed is 461 meters per second. The number of molecules in one cubic centimeter under these conditions was found by Loschmidt. Whom I briefly mentioned as a contender for the ring structure of benzene, he calculated in 1865 the value as 2.7 times 10 to the 19th molecules in one cubic centimeter. Of course, no gas is ideal or perfect, so the assumptions are not quite right. Gases do condense into liquids and solids, so the molecules do interact. And molecules do have a size, which was calculated in 1905. The practical result is that at extreme temperatures and pressures, the ideal gas law begins to fail. So, in 1873, Dutch scientist Johannes van der Waals took into account the size and attraction of molecules to each other and modified the ideal gas equation slightly. He added into the equation two constants which depended upon the gas, so that the molecular attraction and size are included. The new van der Waals equation worked much better to predict properties of gases. The temperature in the ideal gas law and the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution for molecular speeds in a gas both are what's called absolute temperature. What does that mean? So let's look closely at the ideal gas law. Suppose we shrink pressure and volume to zero. What happens to the temperature? It must also go towards zero. Fair enough. But can pressure or volume become negative? No. Therefore, the temperature cannot be negative too. Its smallest allowable value is also zero. So what does zero temperature mean? Recall that molecular motion is related to temperature. As you cool molecules, their most likely speed drops. Eventually, the speed can reach zero, at zero temperature. This absolute temperature of zero means the molecules have no speed at all; they become motionless. Scientists call this absolute zero. There is no lower possible temperature. What temperature in a scale we know does this correspond to? It turns out to be about minus 460 degrees Fahrenheit, or minus 273 degrees Celsius. William Thompson, Lord Kelvin, first invented an operational definition of an absolute temperature scale in 1848, so we now call it the Kelvin scale in his honor. Absolute zero then has a value of zero kelvins. Meanwhile, 
Fant Hoff, whom we met when he came upon stereochemistry, in which molecules have a definite 3D arrangement, was interested in osmotic pressure as a way to understand the mysterious chemical affinity we keep running into. Osmotic pressure can be described like this. Suppose you have a container divided into two halves side by side, separated by a membrane that only allows water to pass through. Fill the container with water, and the water molecules can go through the membrane from one side to the other. Now add sugar to one side of the container. The two sides want to equalize the concentration of sugar, but only water can go through the membrane. So the side with no sugar sends water through the membrane to the sugary side to equalize the concentrations. You can push down on the sugary solution side to stop the flow of water. It will take a specific pressure depending on the concentration of sugar. This pressure to stop the equalization is called osmotic pressure. Fantehoff realized that the osmotic pressure acts like the ideal gas law in that the concentration of sugar directly affects the osmotic pressure. He specifically explained osmotic pressure using the kinetic gas theory. And that ties together gases and solutions. If you were asking what do physical properties of gases have to do with chemistry? But let us now move to ions in those solutions. Faraday's mysterious ions were just not explainable in the early to mid 19th century. What were they? What was electricity anyway? It seemed to act like a fluid. Chemists pondered these ions for decades till Johann Wilhelm Hittorf ran experiments in 1853 that showed how different ions traveled at different speeds in solution and the ions moved independently of their oppositely charged counterparts. Hittorf's work thus created the idea of an ion transport number, the speed of ions carrying current in a solution. But Hittorf still left the fundamental notion of an ion unexplained. Scientists pondered ions again for a couple of decades. By 1887, François-Marie Raoult in France researched behavior of solutions again. Solutions are made of two parts. The solvent, which is the bulk of the solution, like nitrogen in air or water in wine or beer or water in seawater. The other part of the solution is the solute, the minority component of the solution. So oxygen and argon are solutes in air, alcohol in wine or beer is a solute, and sodium chloride is a solute in seawater. Raoult found that the pressure of the vapor of a solvent in equilibrium with its solution is proportional to the mole fraction of the solvent. This is now known as Raoult's law. Let's just say that mole fraction is something like the percentage by number of molecules and not by weight. Mole fraction can give you a good guess as to how many molecules there are. Among Raoult's experiments was measuring the freezing point of solutions. The freezing point is the temperature at which a liquid freezes, which is 0 degrees Celsius for pure water. But in a solution, that temperature is lowered by the presence of solutes in the solution. So, seawater freezes at a lower temperature than pure water because of the dissolved salts. Antifreeze for your car freezes at a much lower temperature than pure water. 
This phenomenon is called freezing point depression. Raoult found that the freezing point of a solution drops proportionately to the number of molecules of solute in the solution. Then, from the amount of freezing point depression, you can work backwards to find the concentration of your solute in that solution. But Houston, we have a problem with this. We can certainly imagine a chunk of sugar breaking up into molecules as it dissolves in water, and this idea works well for all non-electrolytes. Those compounds that do not conduct electricity when dissolved. But what happens when you add table salt, sodium chloride, to water? You get a measured freezing point depression twice what you would expect. You also get an osmotic pressure twice what's expected. Apparently, the number of particles when a salt dissolves is double what you expect. And what about dissolving calcium chloride, CaCl2? You get a measured freezing point depression and osmotic pressure three times what you expect, meaning there are three times as many particles floating around as the number of CaCl2s you add. Raoult did make tables of valency and explained this observation in 1882 on the difference between physical molecules, what we see outside of a solution, and chemical molecules, how the compound appears in a solution. It also helped to justify the new scheme of atomic weights after the 1869 International Congress and Canizzaro distributing his brochure. Svante Arrhenius was a Swedish chemist working on his doctoral dissertation at the time, also studying solutions. He proposed in his dissertation that such salts broke up into their atoms in solution. One NaCl broke into a sodium atom and a chlorine atom, giving the two particles you measure from freezing point depression. One CaCl2 broke into a calcium atom and two chlorine atoms, giving the three particles found in freezing point depression. The process of breaking apart chemists call dissociation. Raoult already mentioned something like this several years earlier, but these dissociated atoms in a solution weren't just regular atoms, according to Arrhenius. They either were the atoms of electricity that some proposed in Faraday's time, or they carried the atoms of electricity. These ions carry the positive and negative charges in solution. This is called the theory of ionic dissociation. That is. Salts break up into ions in solution. Arrhenius's PhD committee gave him a really hard time with his dissertation. They pointed out that sodium atoms explode on contact with water, so why doesn't salt flame up when it dissolves? They wondered why we don't detect chlorine gas, which is greenish and poisonous, so tasting salt water should be deadly toxic. And now we have opposite charges all in close proximity in a solution. Why don't they just combine back together again? And where do these charges come from inside molecules anyway? If you say molecules break up and atoms get or lose electrical charges, that implies atoms aren't indivisible. How can all this be? Arrhenius didn't have much of an answer for his committee, except to say that a sodium ion. Is not chemically the same as a sodium atom. 
He did also add that the ionic dissociation is dynamic. That is, salt molecules were constantly combining and separating in a reversible equilibrium. The committee almost rejected his research, but eventually passed him at the lowest possible level—a fourth-degree doctorate. This was so low he wouldn't get a university teaching position. The custom of the time was to send copies of his dissertation to a variety of chemists in the field, such as Van Hoff, Ostwald, whom we shall meet in the next episode, and Oliver Lodge, the expert in electromagnetism and later radio. Lodge read Arrhenius's dissertation and remarked that it was quote, "really an attempt at an electrolyte theory of chemistry," and arranged to have an abstract in English. Published in the reports of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, Ostwald was interested enough to offer him a teaching job at his university in Riga, now Latvia. The research contributed also to a friendship between Arrhenius and Van Hoff. After his dissertation, Arrhenius honed his ionic ideas in correspondence with Van Hoff, which he eventually published in German in 1887. It seems likely that Arrhenius was worried that the German physicist Max Planck, later to become famous when we reach quantum theory, would scoop him on the ideas of dissociation of ions. It took a number of years before chemists accepted this view. Recall that in the 1880s, the controversy over the existence of atoms continued. Chemists pretty much accepted atoms for bookkeeping purposes. And physicists still had no clear evidence for atoms, which wouldn't happen for another two decades. Circumstantial evidence wasn't good enough, but scientists did eventually accept the idea, and he received the Nobel Prize for this work in 1903. A few years later, Arrhenius came up with another idea, while studying that inversion of cane sugar catalyzed by acids. He suggested that molecules do not always react with each other when they collide. Rather, they only react if they have a minimum energy of activation. Otherwise, they merely bounce off each other and go their separate ways. If that minimum energy to react is a small one, most molecules do have the energy to react with each other, and the reaction proceeds forward easily, rather like a car rolling over a small stick in the road. If that activation energy is large, though, then most molecules do not have the energy to react. Most bounce off each other, and only a few have statistically enough energy to react. The reaction proceeds slowly, with difficulty, rather like a car trying to roll over a large speed bump. To get the reaction to go faster, give the molecules more energy by heating them. You might heat them enough that the reaction goes really fast, like an explosion. If you heat hydrogen gas mixed with oxygen gas hot enough, you reach an ignition temperature, and the gases explode. Here is another example where chemistry and kinetic theory of gases meet. In our next episode, we continue down the path of physical chemistry. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. 